Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Miriam von Reschen. I know I said that really badly, so she'll probably <laughs> correct me. <laughs> Miriam is a sports nutritionist for the Team Netherlands and in particular works with their wheelchair tennis program and also works with their able-bodied skier and snowboard program. So welcome to the podcast, Miriam. Thank you, Liz. It was nice you introduced me as doctor. I never I never used that title, so it's. I was a bit like, oh, doctor, yeah, my doctor. Yeah, I don't use it either. So whenever anyone calls me Dr. Broad, I look around for whoever that might that be in the room and then realize, oh, they're talking to me. <laughs> Miriam, can you start us off by telling us about your background and how you got into being a sports nutritionist? Yes, I, I know that question was coming and I, I find it really difficult to answer actually. And I, I try to keep it brief, but make it the most important <laughs> thing I want to say in there is that I know for from a young age, I was like very active. My, my parents would tie me to a tree because otherwise I would run away. And <laughs> I, I enjoyed sports, but what I mainly enjoyed was when I did something and I did it again and again, I would become better at it or faster. Or And I must have been around 10 or 11 and I would watch at the clock at home and then see what time it is and I run a certain block and then watch, come back and see what time it is. And, and being able to do that faster or bigger loop in the same time, that was quite something that got to me. And fast forward to, to 20 years later when... I went to college and I did development economics first and I started running again and I got this feeling again of how magical it is, what you can do with your body if you train. And and then I heard there was this study, Human Movement Sciences in Amsterdam. So I switched to Amsterdam and I started that study. And yeah, I, I must say I'm, I, I'm quite self-willed. So I went to maybe half of the colleges, mm -hmm. but then the other time I spent on doing my own little like researches. Uh, and in hindsight, I think what I did was quite thorough for someone who was starting university because I wrote like little mini reviews about all kinds of topics related to at that time running. So how would I be able to be faster? What is fatigue? Um, what do I need to eat? What do I need to do to get faster? And I, I was a national runner at that moment. So I published some of those articles on my website and then some people asked me about it and I started writing for the Dutch Runners World and uh, some other Dutch magazines. And yeah, I think what my study really taught me was reading science, like reading literature and being able to interpret the data and to see what was missing and to be critical about it. So my study was partly about nutrition, but more about physiology. But the nutrition part, I really, yeah, I, I guess self-thought and self-research. So then I did the IOC sport nutrition course. And yeah, just from there, I started. And uh, Oscar Jürgendrup asked me, he's our head of nutrition at Team NL. In 2019, he asked me if I could uh, do something for the tennis squad. And I started with the able-bodied tennis players first. And half a year later, they asked me to do the Paralympic. And then now, so I'm involved with tennis, uh, swimming, able-bodied, uh, synchronized swimming, able-bodied, and ski and snowboard, which is both para mm. and able-bodied. Right. Okay. And so you've been in that area for a couple of years, but how long have you been 
working in sports nutrition now in total? Well, when I when I was at university and maybe in the later years, I, I set up my own company in which I gave presentations about what I had learned about nutrition. And from then, athletes came to me about asking if I could help them personally. And in the beginning, I was a bit like afraid of doing so, but I saw that they really wanted to learn something and they were putting a lot of effort in their training, but then making like easy mistakes I could fix on nutrition, for example, mm-hmm. marathon runner, not taking anything in. So I already started helping people kind of, which was not professional at that time. But then, yeah, after the sport nutrition course, then I really took it on. So I think it has been around 10 years now. Okay, awesome. And so with the para-athletes and and particularly maybe with wheelchair tennis, what do you see Mm -hmm. are some of the key nutrition challenges that they face that maybe, seeing as you work with able-bodied and wheelchair tennis, that may differ from the able-bodied counterparts? Mm. Well, for me, when helping them, the biggest challenge was when there is a challenge for them, something. With an able-bodied athlete, I would be able to do a kind of a research, literature research to see what is there. Mm-hmm. And if there's something that I wouldn't know if that I could help them with. But with Paralympic athletes, there is so few research that I can't use that as a starting point. Mm-hmm. But that means, and something that, that I've really learned over the years is that I just have to ask questions and see what it, their reality is. And mm. we do it together. Like I might have some solutions, but I have to see if it works for them and if there are additional challenges mm-hmm. that, that I might oversee. Yep. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. And and then there are things that I, I'm an athlete myself, so some things I may relate to, but with para-athletes, there are more challenges I, I cannot relate to. Mm-hmm. And so uh, by asking more questions, you can get a better understanding from them what their experience is and then be able to try and explain where you try and explain to them where you're trying to improve their nutrition and why, and then they kind of help find the solution for you. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's also about not assuming anything. Like mm-hmm. if we talk about energy use in training or what they need in a total day. When I did the first diary records of them, I was like, this is not possible. They're eating so little. But then if I talk Mm -hmm. to them, like, how do you feel during the day? Do you have optimal recovery? Do you feel energized? And then they tell me they do. Why, how, how can I tell them that it's not right what they're doing? If that's what the literature is saying or what I'm assuming that what they need. So little things like that, I try to, yeah, they have to, they, they are their own expert about their body. I can only add the nutritional part. Yeah. And do you find that sometimes you make an assumption, particularly when you ha- don't know that sport, where they might say, for example, okay, I did a training session for two hours on the court. And in your mind, you kind of picture something that, that <laughs> you can relate to, which might be what you see in the able-bodied sort of tennis world. And then... Have you found that sometimes when you go to training and you watch them, you realize that actually what you assumed was quite different to what you're actually seeing? Yes and no. The no part, because 
I, I don't play tennis myself and I'm not a synchronized mm-hmm. swimmer and I don't ski and snowboard. So it helped me a bit that I have little knowledge of it. So I had to go and watch and see what they're doing and, and asking. So if you do weight training, what does it look like? And go and see what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate to, to go to training camps with them very much from the beginning. So I could actually see how a day looks and, and what are the challenges involved with, with traveling. And that's something that is very different for a Paralympic athlete, I think, than for an able-bodied athlete. So really the practicalities are, um, yeah, I, I really had to, to get to know those. Yeah. And, and so how different do you think it is for someone who's, say, a ski snowboarder compared to a wheelchair tennis player who's in a more summer-based sport? Do you think that there's different challenges that they face not just because of the sport but sort of an interrelationship between the different sport as well as the different context in which they're operating yeah for sure well something that really surprised me or I had no not maybe not surprised but I hadn't thought about with the ski and snowboard was that if they're on the mountain going to the toilet is really a challenge because it takes Mm -hmm. a lot of time before they get somewhere where they can use a toilet and that's time they can't use in training. So Mm -hmm. having optimal hydration is something that is, yeah, you can say, okay, this is optimal. This is what you need and it helps with recovery and blah, blah, blah. But if it, if they don't want to drink because they can't use, they can't use the toilet, then it's a completely different question. And those are really more in the winter sports. I see those kind of questions about facilities and also about nutrition. Like it's much more difficult to get a a proper meal when you're on the mountain than when you're in a tennis park or when you have a fridge next to your room or, yeah. Yeah, and and similarly with snacks on the the hill, if they take Mm, a snack up in their their backpack, you've got to have something that can withstand maybe freezing cold temperatures and exactly. you know, so you know some things become very inedible when it's zero degrees or below outside <laughs> don't they <laughs> yeah yeah for sure yeah yeah and so in terms of the energy demands you mentioned that the energy demands were something that you had to kind of learn about how different are they from one individual athlete to another like I guess, you know, what sort of impairments are you working with, say, within wheelchair tennis? And do you find that there's much difference in the energy demands according to that impairment compared to, say, on the winter side? Mm. Well, they're still busy with it, but they they started a big project in in the Netherlands called Paranut um, in in a conjunction with uh, some Norwegian researcher. And that's how they looked at energy use during training and in rest. And it gave me some idea about the differences between the athletes. And the differences were huge. Like you would, you can't say it's the group, it's the para-athletes. Some some para-athletes had comparable energy use than able-bodied tennis players. Mm. And in, in for the winter sport athletes, it's mainly the influence of the environment like so being at altitude or being at very cold environments that makes such a big difference on what what they need when they're training at home or when they're training abroad but but that said i i find that even like an able-bodied or para it doesn't really matter that 
it's such an estimation of energy use because every training is a bit different and they might cycle also the para athletes or they might do other activities at home or they especially with tennis they have a very intense training or training that is more uh, skill-based so Mm -hmm. i can't for each day exactly measure what they're yeah what they need so i really want them to to get a feel themselves what they need and how they can anticipate on that and one of the most important well no not one the most important thing when i work with an athlete is that i wanted to have a healthy relationship with food and for me that means that it listens to the body what it needs and learns okay this is enough and i need more now even though i think i had enough and yeah. I can come with a figure like you need 3,000 calories, but it might be two and a half and it might be three and a half. But if they're mm-hmm. still hungry, do I tell them they're not supposed to eat? I Yeah. 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 And so do you find that, that they're pretty good at understanding that once you give them, say, a framework to work around? Or do, you know, how much time do you think it takes for an athlete to really understand their their energy needs and how that changes according to training and environment and to get comfortable with changing their intake on a day-to-day basis because you often find that athletes eat the same thing every day irrespective of how much training they've done and so some days they may overconsume, and then other days they're probably well and truly under consuming in your experience how long does that take for an athlete to actually learn that nuance Mm, well i think the the understanding part is the easy thing that i can Mm. explain to them like okay for this training you kind of need this and this and if you start with that and you're still hungry you can take extra but this is the minimum you need and after Mm. training you need this and this and they can relate to that and and it's quite practical but with with every Board and every athlete I work with, I think reality kicks in, like mm. traveling, stress, emotion, really liking something and wanting to eat it or not wanting to eat something. I think those are mm, maybe not more, but at least half of those are, are part of the decision what to eat. Yeah. And that's what I mean with the healthy relationship. I, I think navigating around both what do I need for optimal performance and what do yep. what does my my whole body need? <laughs> that, <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's a tricky tricky yeah, for me it's a, that's the biggest challenge working with athletes, I guess. Well, not just athletes, I think any human being you you see mm, pretty much sure, everywhere sure. in the world that that not many people have that really good relationship with understanding their their needs versus their wants or the things that inf- the external things that influence their intake you know how how exactly. their emotions and their stress levels and 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 other things influence that mm. so i don't and, think and what is, i don't think yeah. athletes are any different <laughs> no and 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 what i think is even more challenging for an athlete is that some people have this idea that athletes eat perfectly whatever perfect is and so mm. they they kind of feel um, not all of course but some feel that they have to have this perfect diet and that they don't they feel even more guilty than when they're not an athlete because people mm. think they they only eat like chicken rice and broccoli or and <laughs> yeah so yeah. and i i, I al- always hope that 
of course, they need certain things around training and we can really optimize that. But they should also enjoy cake and ice and whatever if they want to at some point. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so do your athletes do much in the way of monitoring in terms of, you know, I guess some of the things that you're asking them to look at in themselves to know whether they've had enough to eat is is related to their recovery in terms of how sore they are, what their energy levels are for training, whether they're actually getting through the training with high quality. Do they, do your athletes tend to have tools that they're using to help give them information about that? Mm, Well, I, I prefer not to give them like really meal plans with all the calories because I don't really mm-hmm. want them to count like everything. And we yeah. have certain protocols for like, okay, in training, this amount of, of if it, either if it's sport drinks or raisins or bananas or, and then after training, you do this and this and this. Um, so those are the standardized settings. And then I, I give them a, for an, a range of, okay, can be very simple, like two to four sandwiches, if it's a really intense training or if it's longer or there. Um, and that's a bit more complicated in tennis, of course, than in swimming. Like in swimming, I can say, okay, if the training is longer than 5K, then we do this and this. And in tennis, it's it's more it's even more about feel, like how intense was the training? Um, what else is there on the day? How intense is the weight training? Or Yeah. Yep. Yep. But they, they have been using this the heart rate monitors. And I actually... We have a, um, a system in Holland where, as part of Team NL, if I have a question that requires a really lot of research, there's a team that can answer those questions for me. And the okay. wheelchair tennis players have been using a polar heart rate monitor. And mm-hmm. it gives some kind of energy. After training, yeah. it, gets, it says how, ma- how much energy the training should have, uh, how yeah. much they should have used. And I was just curious if there's any research about how accurate that is for valid people, but also for para-athletes, if we have some kind mm-hmm. of algorithm we can, and of course, specified for certain kind of disablements. But it came, she came back to me, the, the, the answer came back to me that it's the, the range is too big, the variety is too big. So, yeah, and I also explained that to my athletes, that if you been on the on the court for two hours your heart rate monitor probably says around 1200 1400 calories but we don't know we don't Mm. know if it's actually 600 or 800 or if it is 1200 so i don't want them to Mm. to use that as a as a tool for assessing how much they eat yeah and i think that's a really important point because there are so many tools like the apple watches and and some Mm. of them have wheelchair mode in them built into Mm. them but we still don't know how valid they are it's actually we don't it's very hard to get information from the companies as to Mm. who they've tested that on how they've validated it and you you definitely see athletes where you're just like well there's no way that they've expended that many calories in Mm. in that type of session so exactly um and, and so I think it's it's just interesting to know sort of what tools can be used and and I think that doesn't mean that the heart rate monitor can't be used in a different way, you know, in terms of, mm. okay, if you know what your heart rate is at rest and, and during certain exercise patterns, you can at least get a sense of the intensity level and, and if that intensity level doesn't match how it felt in terms mm. of it felt a lot harder, then that maybe is an indication that you 
weren't as rested as perhaps you thought you were or you're in an intense block of training and that's what we're going to expect. Yeah, for sure. But but yeah. but for for para or for able bodied athletes, I'm still not sure if all those wearables, at least for energy use, are are more helpful or or more hindrance. Um, do you, because do you it, feel it, like that they focus too heavily on that? Yeah, for one part, but also they they go away from how do you feel, how hungry are mm. you, not what 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 does your watch say, but. And and even for in swimming we can say this was five k, but was it five k of or of high intensity or was it five k of endurance and was it in a cold pool or was it in a hot pool? So yeah, those are such a big influence on energy use that that yeah you, you yeah it's yeah. way off if you look at only energy and eat from that and then you don't listen to what your body actually tells you what what you might need. Yeah. Absolutely. And what about supplements? Are they something that your athletes tend to ask a lot of questions about or do they use supplements a lot? Not not getting into name names or talk about mm-hmm. specifics so much, but mm-hmm. do you feel as though that's an area that is, is of interest and, and how do you sort of go about guiding your athletes in terms of taking any supplements? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have certain that we're kind of have standard protocols. We I advise everybody to use them and how to use them. And then there are some that I I sometimes think, okay, this would really be beneficial for a certain athlete. But then it's also talking together, like, how, do you want to use it? Uh, I think this it might help with this and this, but we want to see how it works with you. So we always use a testing phase when it's not important competition or if they don't have a grand slam coming up and then mm-hmm. it's really about communicating a lot like what how does it feel what do you feel anything if we can measure certain things we can we we do but of course most of the things you can't really measure if it has an effect on on performance so i really want the, the athletes themselves to take responsibility for what do I want to use and and of course I have the knowledge of what it might do but then it's it's up to them if they if they want to use it Mm. is that something that you usually broach or do you wait until the athlete broaches it um no I usually broach it if there's something I think that might be of help and sometimes I give like small presentation for the whole group explaining some kind of supplements or if there's a new supplement or there's a new knowledge about the supplement Mm -hmm. Um, and then I I, most of the time I say okay think about it and then come back to me if you if you have questions about it or if you want to start using it and sometimes they come with to me like yeah I remember some of that when I just started they came with this list okay these are all the supplements I want to use or I am using can you please enlighten me do they work or do they (laughs) don't work or how should I use them and most of the time I could cut half of them and yep. <laughs> save them some money. Yeah. yeah, and go back to, oh, what food can we put in that place to, exactly. to actually make sure that you're getting some other things. Yeah. Mm. And and what about carbohydrate needs? I mean, I think that's something that, you know, a lot of sports nutritionists and sports dietitians sometimes struggle a little bit with is, you know, you look at the recommendations for able-bodied athletes and and you go, okay, well, if I was to apply that to this para-athlete, then I'm probably going to blow their energy budget. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So how do you kind of go about in terms of recommending how much carbohydrate they may 
want to sort of target? Do you, I mean, obviously you talk more not in terms of grams and, and numbers, but more in terms of how do you build that into their program? Yeah. So, so again, I, I, so I started with all the athletes with a diary record and I want them to make pictures as well and sending them to me. So I, I get a better feel of if everything's on there and what if the, what the portions are. Mm-hmm. And most of the time uh, they've been doing this for a long time. And, mm-hmm. and if they are kind of weight stable, then what they're eating on a day is kind of what their body needs so what i want them to do is focus the carbohydrates on the training moments so Mm -hmm. that usually means getting a bit less in the dinner and after dinner snacks and putting more around training at when the when it really matters and i always try to explain them it really helps with metabolism and muscle function and recovery if they're able to to do it that instead of only having the big meals and not eating anything during the training and I, yeah, sometimes I get an athlete where I think carbohydrate is really too low and there are more, uh, there's more intake of protein and fat. So mm-hmm. yeah, then, then we talk about that and then we try to see if it helps if they eat more carbohydrates, if they feel better. Yeah. Cool. And do you find that there's differences between the summer athletes, the wheelchair tennis players and the winter athletes in terms of, you know, perhaps their understanding of, the importance of those different macronutrients, the, the proteins and the fats and the, and the carbs and perhaps how they put them into their day? Or do you find that, you know, each athlete is is very individual and, you know, because sometimes I think, you know, some athlete, some athlete groups perhaps there's just the nature of the type of mm. work that they do and the environment that they're in, you know, that, that influence of food and culture in those environments can be a little bit different. Mm, for sure. Yeah, and I think that I don't have to make the difference between para or able-bodied there, but certain sports, I think, attract more people with a certain personality, to say it very mm-hmm. black and white. Yeah. And, for example, swimmer, those persons, they also always go to the pool the pool is 50 or 25 meters it's the same kind of temperature circumstances they really can clock every time and everything while a tennis player or or a snowboarder the circumstances are different every time and they they face challenges they haven't overcome before and it's yeah so it's a very little about numbers or or exact Mm. timing or anything and I sometimes see that in the nutrition as well, that do you want exact numbers, what you need to eat? Or do you want to say, ah, oh, I don't want to eat the same every day. I want to have some variety and I want new things. And yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah. So what recommendations do you have for athletes? And particularly if there's an athlete who is new to a program and hasn't really ever sort of approached their nutrition yet, what would you say to them and how would you start that process if it was you that they came to talk to? Mm, I think, first of all, if you want something, you have to ask for it. So if that's starting <laughs> a new... Yeah, you have to be a bit bold if you really want something and are passionate about it. So if you want to start a new sport as a pair or able-bodied athletes, you you just have to approach the people you think can help you and ask them and what I've seen, I did that myself, but I also see it in the programs I work with, that they're very open to help people who want to, like who really have a passion and really want to get better. 
And if I work with an athlete, I have a lot of athletes, so I really have to divide my time. And if I see that an athlete is very willing to put in the time, then I'm less concerned about their current level. I just want to get that athlete to a better level for themselves. And yeah, when when an athlete comes to me, I usually start with a with a with a record to see what they're doing now and make small improvements to make that better and not have this kind of ideal plan where they have to work to. Yeah, and see what they're already doing that is helping them because they already got to some point. So it's not all bad what they're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So start with the basics. Yeah. Yeah, because I think a lot of athletes think that going to a dietitian, they're going to be told what they can't eat mm-hmm. rather than yeah. being told, you know, what, what the reality is, which is we're, we're not the food police. <laughs> we're not here yeah. to yeah. tell you what you can't eat. We're here to sort of help you develop the performances and develop the training capacity that makes you a better athlete and, and to find exactly. the little tricks that help you do that through food and, and mm. through nutrition. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I remember the first time I was on training camp with the athletes and and I was in the table and an athlete came with two hamburgers to the table and he saw me and he turned around and put them back. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> what are you doing? He said like, yeah, I guess I can't eat it. I said, why can't you eat it? Uh, if if that's what you think you need, we can talk about it, but I'm not going to judge you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, they got to know me better now. But um, yeah, in the beginning, the, yeah, it was like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the only time I've ever taken something literally off an athlete was when he walked onto a, a bus on the way to a game. This was a team sport athlete. So mm-hmm. they're meant to be playing in the next couple of hours after getting off this bus and he walks onto the bus with a big bag of crisps potato crisps oh. <laughs> and I'm like uh I think we can find a slightly better pre-game <laughs> option for you <laughs> it's the only time I've taken something out of an athlete's hands mm. and, and perhaps replaced it with something else <laughs> yeah and it's also then it's a team sport, so you let down your athletes. I guess what I would have done if, if it would be an individual athletes, I would just have, have them eat the crisp and then, yeah, make their own mistakes. It's, yep. yeah, <laughs> I'm not their mother. <laughs> yeah, true, true. What about any recommendations that you have for other practitioners, other, you know, young sports nutritionists or people who work in sports nutrition but haven't really experienced para-athletes what recommendations would you have for them Mm, a bit the same as for the athletes that ask ask a lot if you want something go and see people ask how they're doing things try to see if you can see what the athletes are doing in a program and Mm -hmm. if you when I started with the para-athletes I had very little knowledge about para-athletics so uh, or para-athletes so I I just try to learn a lot read a lot ask a lot yeah, because you have to have some base to, to start helping them. Mm. And do you find that the athletes, the para-athletes are pretty forthcoming? Like I think some people get a bit nervous about, well, should I ask them, you know, about their disability and how they got that or should I ask them this question? And I said, look, you know, as far as I, I know and my experience, you ask a para-athlete something and, any, anything that's going to help you understand how their body works and perhaps even 
help them understand how that body works because you've got some knowledge, they've got an experience, but you may actually be able to help them work out why that's happening. And and so for me, there's never a bad question to ask. Mm. And if they don't want to answer that, then they'll tell you. Exactly. Yeah, and I think mm. uh, what I experienced is that they actually liked it that I asked the questions and that if a question was kind of painful, that also built our relationship because they could say something about why that was difficult for them. So, mm. yeah, I know I never felt that I, I couldn't ask anything. Or Yeah, fantastic. Wow, Miriam, I think you've got some great sort of insight there and some some really nice advice and it's good to, to see that you've developed those relationships over time and that the athletes are really comfortable with you now. Uh, one final question before we let you go and you're probably aware of what that's going to be, so hopefully you've prepared <laughs> for what's your favourite food? Uh, yeah, I prepared Usually I have this period, so I, I eat something for, for a month and I really like it and then the next month is, is something else and then I eat that until I get bored of it. But the thing <laughs> I always come back to is really good bread with butter. Mm. Okay, and what's your definition of really good bread? What are some of the key components that it has to have? Yeah, that can be that can be a lot of different things. I should now I'm really into sourdough bread. We have some amazing bakeries here in Amsterdam, so I'm trying all all of them to see which one I like the most. <laughs> have you spent much time in America? Uh, no, not so much. No, no. I was going to ask you if you, what your thoughts are about American bread. <laughs> Ah, okay. Well, we're going with the swim team to Flagstaff next month, so I, I might be able to <laughs> tell you afterwards. <laughs> I personally find it very sweet. I find it and, and not oh, really. Sweet. Oh, sweet. Yeah. It's very different than European bread. And, and one of the things I, you know, having worked in the US for a number of years and we had some athletes who lived and trained in wheelchair basketball in particular over in Europe and I said how do you find the bread in Europe and they're like oh my word like <laughs> it's nothing like you nothing like what's in at home it's so nice and <laughs> so mm. I think being European you have a different sense of what good bread should be like so i'd be very interested to see if you manage so how is australian bread eat. then um it can be a little bit well it's it's you can find some really good bakeries and some really good grainy sort of bread and some really mm. good sourdoughs. It certainly doesn't have the the sugar levels on the whole that, oh, yeah. that you get in America. You certainly and not there's something else about it in the States. Actually, what I find interesting is that I have athletes who can't eat the bread in the US because it gives them a stomach upset, but they can eat bread in Europe. And I don't oh, know really? whether it's related to the amount of gluten that they add mm -hmm. to the bread and that it just makes a different, a really different kind of texture that just doesn't, doesn't have that sense of real uh, mouthfeel and satiety that I think a lot of the bread in, in Europe and, and some of the bread that we have here can have. Mm, interesting. Mm, so, sorry, yeah, I went, went off on a tangent there about all things about <laughs> bread. <laughs> 
Well, thank you, Miriam, for your time. I know you need to start your day and, and you've probably got a lot on your plate, And uh, but we appreciate your insights and wish you all the best with your para-athletes and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Liz. I like the way that Miriam has outlined her approach to working out how much food athletes need to eat and the fact that she really focuses on them having a healthy relationship with food and really understanding their own body signals and the messages that their body gives them to indicate whether they've had enough or too much to eat. I think often we get so caught up in technology that we actually forget to listen to our bodies and our bodies are pretty good at telling us a lot of things. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback or any people that you'd really like to listen to, please leave a message on our website. And I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Dr. Summer Christie, who is a mental performance consultant for Team Canada Wheelchair Rugby.